When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I am Sam Abul Samad. So a little bit of we're starting to head into the summer doldrums. We kind of scraped a couple topics together this week. Uh, they're still good. Don't worry. <laughs> um, there actually was some stuff I wanted to talk about, but it turns out I'm not allowed to talk about it until September. So is it going to be cool when we can talk about it in September? If I remember, yeah. Okay. What you should do now is, um, and we'll wait, uh, you can go into your Google calendar and set a reminder. <laughs> you know what? You can probably do it while we're talking about cars. Um, uh, just put it on the rundown for some time later. <laughs> uh, so well, let's talk about what we're driving, though. Uh, okay. And you had the Continental, and I'm really interested in the Continental, and you also had a lacrosse. Um, then another car I'm really interested in, but I'm, I mean, the Continental is, this is supposed to be like the fourth time the Continental is going to be the savior of Lincoln, and they finally got a more cohesive style to it. Uh, it you know, it it's derivative, I suppose, but it also, it, it's a great looking car, and it seems like it's nicely... Uh, nicely finished. It's not just a sort of, you know, a, a 10 footer. Um, so what did you think? So, yeah, you know, the, the Continental, um, thankfully, you know, hopefully this is the beginning of a trend for Lincoln of returning to actual names for their cars instead of, um, you know, meaningless alphanumeric uh, three letter codes. I still think it would be cool if they came out with an MK Ultra, but that's just that's just the the geek in me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, or well, call it a Mark Ultra. Mark Ultra. Okay. Right. You know, go, go back to that designation. Um, you know, so yeah, they, you know, the MKS is dead um, and uh, the Continental takes its place. And, you know, a, a few years back, uh, I guess somewhere around 2013 or so, um, you know, around the time that the current generation Ford Fusion was debuting, you know, there were a whole bunch of spy photos floating around of uh development mules for the car that was supposed to replace the mks and it was going to be based on a stretched version of the fusion and mkz platform and the the photos you know we saw at that time those mules that were running around they had uh a grill you know it still had you know had another version of the the split bow wave grill um which apparently nobody really liked very much um you know and and it was, you know, kind of a longer, sleeker version of the, the MKZ. Um, and that whole thing basically got trashed and they started over again. Uh, you know, they brought in David Woodhouse to lead Lincoln Design. And um, they, they came up with a whole new design language for Lincoln, which 
in many respects is arguably kind of derivative. Uh, I mean, when I first saw the the sketches of this thing in the design studio uh, way back when, you know, the first thing that struck me was that it looked like a Bentley Mulsan with a Jaguar grill on it. Well, I mean, if you're going to steal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they, they have definitely, you know, taken ideas, taken inspiration from good places, um, you know, and I think, you know, while it's not entirely original, it is very well executed. I, I, I will give them that, you know, they, they've actually done a really nice job of integrating all the details. And, you know, there's a lot of really nice details on this thing. Like I, I particularly really like the way they've done the door handles, you know, so you've got the strip of Chrome along the bottom of the greenhouse and the door handles, you know, just sort of gently swell out of that strip of Chrome on, on each of the doors. Um, and when, when you look at it from a distance, you, you don't even see the door handles, you know, it, it just all kinds of blends in, all kind of blends into that Chrome surround on the side glass. Um, and it's only when you come up close that you, you realize that, the, oh yeah, there's a door handle here and you know, the, it's not, it's not mechanical. There's a, uh, a switch on the, in, on the interior of the pocket of the door handle. So when you stick your hand in there to pull the door handle, you hit that switch and the door opens up. Um, which means of course, that in order for the door to open up, uh, you've got to have battery power. Um, and at, at least, uh, uh, I, I think that there's a release, a mechanical, mechanical backup release somewhere on the outside. And there's also one on the inside on the driver's door. There's actually a, a mechanical pull that's down in the, in the map pocket on the lower part of the door. Uh, so you can, if the, if the battery dies or, you know, you have an electrical problem that prevents the electric, the electric switches from releasing the door, you can actually pull it manually and open the door. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, that's a hot rider thing too, though. There's been electrically operated door latches. Oh yeah. In I mean, cars Cor for the last couple of generations of Corvettes have those yeah. and, and there's, you know, there's other, other cars that have that as well. Um, but you know, it's just. You know, it's kind of the, the way they've executed the whole thing is 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 really quite nice. Um, and, you know, it's it's a it's a very upscale looking design. Um, it's it's a more conservative design, um, you know, and certainly compared to I think, you know, arguably its chief competitor is Cadillac. And I think it's it's a more conservative design than what you get with Cadillac. Uh, it's you know, it doesn't it doesn't really stand out from the crowd as much but uh, i think it, it's it's really well done the interior is really nice there's a lot of really nice detailing on the interior um you know the the speaker grills you know have these spirals of of drilled holes and you know in, a, in the in a metal um panel over the speakers um the uh the seats you know uh, on this particular uh test car that i have uh, this is a, a black label edition, which is the, the high end edition, which comes when you buy a Lincoln black label model. They have just a few uh, limited uh, themes that you can choose from. And this one, the, the one I'm driving is they call it the Rhapsody in blue. You know, so oh, you've got wow. this, this dark blue exterior, blue, blue and, and me uh, metallic and wood interior trim. Um, so and, blue, uh, blue leather. Yeah, blue leather and, and nice. blue, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's Alcantara, you know, some sort of suede-like material on the headliner, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it looks really good. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice look. Uh, and there's a couple of other packages. I think there's a red and a black that are available You know as what well. that, that sounds like? That sounds like 
a new version of the Bill Blass edition. <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, because those were all blue and yeah. But but you know, also like I, I like that you're talking about the details because that was always sort of from its inception, the Continentals thing was mm -hmm. just you know very close attention to the details and very nicely detailed as well. Uh, that's a big part of what made the Continental, especially like the Mark II, uh, which is sort of the pinnacle of it. But just overall, you know, it was always a sort of very well turned out car, very carefully considered design. And, and while it, it may be slightly derivative or even more than slightly derivative, you know, the, the criticisms we're hearing now about the Continental is kind of like the same stuff we heard about the Chrysler 300 when it first came out. Cause there's, there's some of that similarity to the way they look, uh, you know, they have mm -hmm. a bold grill and they're, they're sort of squared off. Um, but I, I get like, now if you, if you look at the, the 300, you know, it's, it's a design that's actually aged very well. Yeah. Uh, and it still looks good now, you know, even, you know, more than a decade on, you know, with the, a, you know, I mean, it's evolved, you know, it's changed and, you know, been incrementally updated every few years. But, you know, it, it's still a familiar look, but it, it, it has held up well over time. Yeah. Uh -oh. Even the 05s look good, though. Like if you were to go all the way back. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I suspect that this car, you know, will, will age equally well. You know, and that's I mean, that's one of the advantages of going with a more conservative design. You know, when you when you kind of step out there more with your design, it, you know, you take the you run the risk of, uh, you know, several years down the road. It it doesn't look as good as it did when it was new. Right. Um, you know, so going with a more classic look, you know, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, it, it generally it often tends to hold up better over time. Well, and every time I see one, too, there a lot of liveries have them um, now for because of our proximity to the airport. So every now and then when I see one, like it does jump out on the road, even though you think it, it might be conservative, it's still it, it catches your eye, at least it catches yeah, my absolutely. eye. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how does it drive? It, it, it drives good, drives really well. Um, you know, it's it's pretty heavy. Uh, you know, at least, you know, in this, the, the one that I have, you know, is loaded with everything you know the seats the front seats are like 30 way power adjustable you know individual adjust individually adjustable thigh supports for your left and right thigh and I mean, it's kind of you know maybe a little over the top there but um you know it it's got it's all it does have plenty of power it's got the uh, three liter gtdi v6 that is not an ecoboost um lincoln is no longer using the ecoboost branding in order to help distinguish it from uh from you know their more mainstream brethren at the, at the blue oval um so they're now just gtdi v6s so gasoline turbocharged direct injection is that the uh, only current uh use of a three liter version of that engine uh it's also in the mk's available in the mkz oh, is it okay yeah with uh and it's all-wheel drive and it's in the um in the continental the all-wheel drive system that they're using is based on the system that's in the focus rs uh so it's the you know based on the so-called performance all-wheel drive so it's capable of doing um you know directing all, all the torque to either axle uh as needed uh as opposed to the system that they've previously had in the uh the fusion and mkz and, and some other models where basically it can only direct about 10 or 15 percent of the torque to the rear axle just to give you a little bit of help 
uh, and it remains primarily a front wheel drive vehicle. This one can, you know, is a full, you know, nominally a 50 50 torque split, and then it can direct the torque to either end. Um, and, you know, with 400 horsepower on tap and, you know, roughly the same amount of uh, torque, um, you know, it's, it's got plenty of, plenty of grunt to, to move this car that weighs uh, somewhere up north of 4,500 pounds. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not so a lightweight. Heavy. But it's, you know, it's kind of, I guess, what it's supposed to be. If you're going to yeah, be well, classic Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, when you start adding all these features on there, it, it adds weight. You know, I mean, think, things like that panoramic sunroof. Oh, those are so heavy. Yeah. yeah I mean, those, those, adding a panoramic sunroof to a car, you know, that's typically an extra hundred pounds that you're putting at the highest point of the car, you know, for the worst, you know, center of gravity. Um, so you know, that's, that's the sort of thing that, you know, packs on the pounds on any car. So, you know, and this one, you know, it's, it's got, you know, plenty of performance, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it doesn't feel like a hot rod Lincoln, even with 400 horsepower, but you know, it has no, no difficulty getting out of its own way. Um, it's adequate. Like we were talking about roles last, last yeah, podcast. It's, it's, it's more, more than, more than adequate. Um, but does it feel like a Lincoln or does it still just feel like a fusion? No, it, it, it definitely feels distinct from a fusion. You know, I mean, the fusion, um, you know, especially, you know, compared to the continental versus the MKZ, um, it, you know, it, it definitely feels lighter on its feet and more nimble. You know, the, the continental definitely feels, um, softer, a little softer, um, you know, not, not floaty, you know, in the classic Lincoln or continent or Cadillac sense, you know, none, none of the floatiness, but it definitely, has a softer feel to it, even with the 20 inch wheels that are on this black label edition. Um, so it, yeah, it feels, it, I think it feels like what you would expect the Lincoln to feel like. And when I was in New York in April for the, for the auto show, um, they were actually shuttling us around uh, to various events uh, in a fleet of Continentals. So I also got to spend a fair bit of time in the backseat of the Continental, which is a very pleasant place to spend time. You know, if you're not driving. Well, that's a perfect place to to try that out and just see how it's going to do as a black car, you know, a a car service car in Manhattan. Or, or, you know, I mean, Lincoln uh, is now piloting in a couple of cities. They started in Miami and I think they've expanded to San Diego, their chauffeur service. Um, So what you can do, you know, when when you buy a a new uh, Continental, uh, you get uh, a certain number of hours of chauffeur service. So, for example, you know, if you want to go out somewhere. Uh, go out for an evening, you know, with your, with your partner and you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to drive. You want to be driven around. You, I think you get uh, like up to six hours of chauffeur service and they have, um, they, they've curated, you know, they've, they've hired um, drivers, professional drivers. And so you just call up and tell them, you know, where you want to be picked up and they will come and they will drive your car for you. Uh, you know, and so these are, you know, they've been all background checked and curated, you know, so, you know, you're, you're getting somebody reliable and they will drive you around so you can hang out in the back and, you know, and relax. So the analog lover in me thinks that that is the most expedient, least expensive solution to autonomous vehicles (laughs) is just hire guys to drive (laughs) Um, personal drivers. It, um, right now, it's it may be the easiest, most expedient way. You know, I think eventually, you know, uh, it eventually, you know, uh, doing it autonomously will probably be cheaper than than hiring drivers. And I I suspect that you know, 
this, you know, services like this are the kinds of things that car makers are experimenting with, uh, trying to figure out what are the sorts of premium mobility services that they can offer in the future when they do have autonomous vehicles, uh, you know, offering you know a, a chauffeur service you know that um picks you up in something like a, a continental you know or some other very premium automated vehicle you know 10 years from now uh is a way that you know it could distinguish you know you could have a service that is distinguished from a, a run-of-the-mill ride hailing service yeah I, I i say it in jest but it's it's always like there's those two things like do you want technology to solve this problem get ready to spend millions and years uh, yeah. Or do you want to just throw people at it? If you have the people to throw at it, that's the fast, cheap way to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it certainly is. It certainly is for, for today. Yeah. Um, so do you think it'll it'll hold up as it as it uh, sort of stays on the market? I guess they're doing kind of a terrible job of letting everybody know that it's here. Yeah, um, I I haven't really seen any marketing for it. I've seen but, none. Um, yeah, it's. You know, that, and that's that's a problem. You know, it's certainly selling better than the MKS did. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, not a very high bar. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, the MKS is another sort of like, yeah, it's a it's a pretty nice car, but mm -hmm. who knows it exists? Um, I tell you what, because there's there's uh, maybe people at Ford who listen that can help us out. Uh, I would be happy to take on the Lincoln account. <laughs> <laughs> to do your advertising for you. Uh, we are results focused in direct response, so we won't take as much money. We'll just get you get you customers. We'll fill your sales funnel. How's that? Good call. Let me know. Hit me up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll give you a finder's fee, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, it's a it's a really nice car. You know, um, you know, they, the Continental starts, at, I think, uh, a little under fifty thousand dollars. Uh, for you know the the base model uh, with front wheel drive, the one you know this black label edition which was loaded with everything and you know part of the buying a black label uh, Lincoln, uh, you also get some other services you know you get various concierge services as part of the deal, um, you get free car washes you know at your at your Lincoln dealer things like that and, you know they'll come and pick the car up for for service appointments. Um, this one was $77,000, which is a bit steep. Yeah. I mean, but there's Cadillacs that cost that, no, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, you compare it to a CT6, um, you know, it's, it's not out of line, you know, or, you know, and, and even, you know, if you start comparing it to some of the German uh, competitors, it's, it's not a bad price, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think it's definitely worth taking a look if you're, if you're, interested in in a luxury sedan um that is very comfortable um you know looks nice um you know it's not you know it's it's not a sports sedan you know and doesn't make any it doesn't have any pretense to being a sports sedan uh you know it's it's definitely a classic luxury sedan um it's it's worth taking a look at okay uh so the other car that we wanted to talk about that you've been driving is the Buick lacrosse yeah, so the the lacrosse is um in in many ways uh very similar to the uh to the Continental um and yet different. You know, um you know as as Lincoln has uh struggled over the past decade or so, it's often, you know, you know traditionally Lincoln was always compared to Cadillac, you know, th those were the two chief competitors and 
um, you know, in, in recent years as Cadillac, you know, has tried, tried to move up market and compete with the Germans, you know, um, oftentimes Lincoln, you know, was considered closer to, um, to Buick than to Cadillac. Well, and I'll agree with that, especially since they, once they got rid of Mercury, Lincoln had that ability to sort of go down a little bit and not, not necessarily on purpose, but just, they could, they could offer, they could fill some of that space that, that Mercury had occupied without stepping on Mercury. Right. And, you know, um, so the, the, the lacrosse is, um, Buick's new flagship, you know, it's their, it's their new large sedan. Um, maybe, you know, arguably it might, might not actually be considered the flagship anymore in terms of sales and so on, uh, that, you know, could arguably be considered the enclave these days. Uh, but you know, in terms of their cars, it's their flagship car, uh, you know, starts at, at $32,000. And the, the one I drove, uh, was an all wheel drive premium. Uh, you know, and it, it's interesting, you know, this is the, the second generation of the, uh, lacrosse that's been, uh, built on GM's Epsilon platform. And this one compared to the last one, you know, that debuted around 2009, um, this one, you know, it's very similar in size, but visually it looks very different, you know, in terms of its proportions. Um, it looks lower and wider, even though it's it's really not very much. The But the way the metal is shaped, it's got a much more um, athletic stance to it. And, you know, I think it's a really attractive car. It's a good looking car. Um, and I was really impressed uh by by its shape and its styling i like the interior you know it's not uh it's certainly not um you know comparable to in terms of you know the the materials and everything to the the lincoln uh but it's you know it's a really nice upscale sedan um you know that's at a you know it's fairly reasonably priced you know um the the one i drove you know is about $47,000 uh, is powered by GM's 3.6 liter uh, direct injected V6, which is a, a wonderful engine. Um, yeah, you know, it's you know it's got a you know the the cabin is really nice. One of the things that I I did like about the the Buick uh, better than the the Lincoln is the belt line is a little bit lower. Uh, mm. The the Lincoln's belt line is really high. You know, so if you are you know inclined to drive with the window rolled down and and your elbow up on the on the, uh, you know, the, the door on the windowsill, um, that's going to be a very uncomfortable position. <laughs> it's going to be up by your ear. Well, yeah. I, you know, I, I actually thought about this, uh, while we were talking about, it. I didn't want to bog us down too much, but I wonder if, uh, part of that weight of the Lincoln is they haven't necessarily moved to using as much high strength steel and, uh, just more, more, uh, state of the art, like state of the art is such a crappy term, but uh, more, I don't know, more sophisticated materials, I guess. Um, yeah, well, that and that you're right. I mean, there's, I mean, there's plenty of high strength steel in there, but the the platform that the the Lincoln is built on, you know, the Ford Ford CD platform, so it's it is a stretched version of you know the underpinnings of the the Fusion and MKZ. Um, it's not the most weight, weight efficient platform in the world. Uh, you know, it was, you know, even when it launched in 2012 and, uh, you know, with the fusion and the MKZ, it was on the heavier side of the segment. 
And now most of the competitors and particularly GM's vehicles have gotten significantly lighter. I mean, GM on everything, every product that they've put out in the last two, three years has done a really impressive job on fundamental engineering, you know, to bring down the weight of their cars, you know, using a lot of really good um, multidisciplinary optimization uh, in designing the structures of their cars. So, you know, they they haven't resorted to using, you know, uh, aluminum intensive structures or anything like that. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's some aluminum in there, there's some magnesium parts, but for the most part, it's steel. And what they've done is just done a lot of really smart design. And so, you know, they've managed to shave, you know, with each car that each vehicle they've redesigned, uh, cars and or SUVs, you know, they've generally dropped by uh, on average 250 to 300 pounds compared to the old ones without getting smaller and without giving up any amenities and features. Yeah, so, you know, the, the same applies to this one. So it's, you know, it's significantly lighter than a, than a continental. Yeah. I mean, they've been on a tear, uh, in terms of, you know, bringing that weight down. And I'm surprised actually that, you know, without, I, I mean, I guess you don't really need alloy, like alloys like aluminum necessarily, but you, you do use the different grades of steel, mm-hmm. um, and you can, you can put strength into the structure without mass or without as much mass. Um, but you know, one of the things that we're, we're seeing with the downsizing of engines and, and one of the things that's pushing us to smaller turbocharged four cylinders, uh, in a lot of places where they hadn't been before is when you make that engine smaller, you can make everything around it smaller. Uh, you, exactly. can, you can make the cradles lighter duty, like everything can get lighter. You know, the, yep. it's it's a cascading effect. There's a virtuous circle there. Uh, that's the term they they use that a lot at GM. Virtuous yeah. circle. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> you know, there's the, well, and it's not just GM. I mean, it's it's two. You get there's two sides of the coin. You know, you have a vicious cycle. You know, where when things start to get worse, you know, it cascades. You know, in that direction. Or if you do things in a different way, you know, you know, one improvement can lead to numerous other improvements. Uh, so you can, you know, by taking a holistic approach to the design, you know, you can, if you reduce, you know, the reduce the size of the powertrain, now you can start taking weight out of other parts of the car that have to support that. So you can go to smaller, lighter brakes, uh, yep. you know, smaller wheels and, you know, so it just cascades throughout the whole system. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it pays off, you know, cars drive better. Yeah. <laughs> for it. And one, one thing that was immediately noticeable to me in this lacrosse compared to the last one I drove, which was several years back, um, the previous generation lacrosse had really massive a pillars and forward visibility to the corners was pretty bad. Um, and they have really slimmed those down on this one. So it's got much better visibility out of the car than the previous lacrosse did. Yeah, I mean, overall, this is this is a very significant upgrade for the lacrosse. You know, while it's it's a name that's been with us for for a while now, it goes back to like the last of the W bodies was the lacrosse, the first gen. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's matured with every step. You know, the last lacrosse was a good car. Uh, it got kind of old. They've they've replaced it with a car that's that's fully competitive. I worry that. It doesn't have a place, though. You know, like you've got the Impala that's same basic car, also very good. Um, you know, what kind of argument does the Buick make for itself? You know, is it in that that area of the market that's just under incredible pressure because people are moving to the actual full on luxury brands, full on premium brands and these these in between brands like like Buick and Acura 
uh, just they have nowhere to go. Well, and it's not just, um, you know, it's not just the, the other brands. It's also the fact that it's a four door sedan. Right. Well, there's that, uh, which, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that's a, a rapidly shrinking marketplace, a rapidly shrinking segment, you know, both you know, mid. Well, I mean, at any size, you know, sedans, car, cars in general are in trouble. Uh, you know, I was I was at a, an event yesterday. Um, Cox Automotive uh, did their uh, mid-year review of uh you know what's going on in the in the marketplace and uh here in detroit and uh they they showed a, a chart you know showing the segment winners and losers you know where, where the gains are in various segments and the biggest loss by far of any segment was mid-sized cars uh you know which year over year down you know like two and a quarter percent this year um down to their lowest market share in a long time of less than 11 percent uh, I mean, that used to be the, the by far the biggest segment, you know, car segment in uh, in the U.S. market. Um, and, you know, it's it's only getting worse. Um, and, you know, especially, you know, this this is an area where Ford has a problem right now because um, it's going to be at least a couple more years before the Fusion is completely redesigned. And, um, you know. Toyota is just now launching an all new Camry, which by all accounts is significantly improved from the previous one, much, much better to drive. It's far more fuel efficient. The Camry hybrid is getting, you know, rated at 53 miles per gallon now, uh, you know, as much as a, almost as much as a, uh, a Prius, uh, you know, and, you know, on the other, you know, every, you know, going back to yesterday with uh, the data from Cox, you know, SUVs and pickup trucks are the big gainers, you know, as, as we all know. And so for a car like the LaCrosse, as good as it is, it's going into a segment that customers are fleeing from. Yeah. So I, it's we can lament it or we can just, you know, like we're never going to we can say like, oh, that's a shame. And that's about all we can do. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be like everybody's going to crossovers kind of you know in in the north american market in europe as a whole like people like them and it reminds me of how there were so many uh you know deriders of the minivan when minivans were really popular in the 80s and 90s everybody hated them it was popular to hate them and, and that's fine i guess as far as it goes but it, they're they're the product for the times. And and so while this, you know, like you say, the, the cars, cars are in trouble. The sedans are in trouble. The crossovers are not. So as long as you've got well, crossovers, that's, that's why it's going to be very interesting to watch, you know, this fall when the new Regal arrives, uh, because, you know, they're, they're adding, uh, what is nominally a station wagon, but they're calling it a crossover, um, because, you know, it sits an inch higher and has, you know, black wheel arches, so, um, you know, the, I love that thing, by the way, I think it's fantastic. It's just, yay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I'll be, I'll be fascinated to watch how that one, uh, how consumers accept that one, because, you know, I mean, really, you know, it's, it's a station wagon, you know, it, it is not but, a utility, but, but on the other hand too, like if everybody's got same, same and you, you come into a, a niche with something that's different. You know, it's uh, I know that there's the Outback and there's, you know, like the the uh, Volkswagen Golf um, all track. The 
uh, or all, whatever thing. All road. All, all road, road. I think. No. I, anyway. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> um, you know. Now there's uh, the Audi. Audi's the all road. Audi's uh, VW is uh, the all track. Yeah. Either way. There's only a couple of different choices there. So now, you, and and Subaru has seen its volume just just grow really oh, yeah. incredibly. And so I, mean, I, I think I think it's it's a it's an abs, it's absolutely the right move for Buick to make to uh, do the Regal Tour X, uh, you know, and and push it as a crossover because you know the, I think you know that will that will get American consumers' attention. You know, uh, and, and I think they'll look past the fact that yes, it's a station wagon. Uh, and but it's a cool station it. wagon, you it know. Is. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's it's just dressed up for the for the event that is yep. this this market right now. I don't know. I hope it does well. Um, and I don't I don't think it really matters to Buick if it does well or if it stiffs because they're they're making money in other places and uh, they don't necessarily need the cars to make money here. Um, I mean they and, they do, and, but they don't. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the the bulk of their sales are in China. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if, you know, even if they only sell, you know, if they sell 40,000 uh, Regals next year, that's twice as many as they sold the last two years. That's yeah. not bad. So, so they, they don't, they don't have to gain very much to, or they don't have to, to sell a huge number to have a huge gain. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's, it, they're definitely moving in the right direction. And, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate for the lacrosse, you know, because as good as the lacrosse is, you know, I think it's probably not going to see not going to find a huge market uh, here in North America. Well, yeah. And I wonder what their expectations and hopes are for it. Um, maybe maybe they only hope for so much anyway. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure that they've got projections out there that maybe they've shared. Um, I, I also no, wonder they what never, they never, they never share their targets, their sales targets. They, they, sometimes they dance around them if you ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually wonder what the Regal Tour X is going to do uh, to Volvo because it's Volvos have gotten expensive. And while they've reintroduced a wagon to the market, um, you know, the, the Regal offers comparable style, certainly not the same build quality and, and luxury, but, you know, 70% of it, maybe 75, more than that, um, at a price that's going to be a lot more appealing to people who, who would consider the Volvo, but can't afford it. So there may be, you know, it may suck some of the air out of that, that yeah. room. I don't know. We'll see, but we can, do you want to talk about a crossover before we move on? I do. Uh, All right. And, and especially, awesome. especially with the one you're driving. I've been very impressed. I've got the Mazda CX nine, um, I've got the signature, so it's it's very nice. It's very you know well equipped. It's a, it's the fully equipped CX nine. Um, Mazda really took notes from BMW ten years ago. I feel like it just there's a lot of like E ninety <laughs> in this car. You know, just the way everything is designed, the way it behaves. Uh, they paid very careful attention to it. Uh, so it's not just a collection of parts thrown into a, a you know, crossover kind of shape and, you know, off you go. It's very carefully tuned. Uh, I was I was really paying attention to how the suspension, the, the ride quality, it it very, very well filters out all that high frequency stuff. But it's also not floaty. So it, it has that sort of supple controlled ride that is that's hard to do. and 
when you're selling sort of a, a crossover in in Mazda's end of the market, it, nobody cares, <laughs> except right. except for people that do. But just generally, you know, it's it's that sort of you know, it's it's a very highly burnished uh, vehicle. You know, the, just the amount of the the steering torque uh, that you have to put into it is is you know just like perfectly perfectly weighted it's very fluid there's not a, a lot of like it doesn't feel like too heavy or too light and it's got a sport button which makes the steering a little heavier so that's you know that's pleasant um it's turbo engine is is you know very punchy and it's responsive and it sounds good uh the thing that i think left the biggest impression was how quiet it is cuz mazdas tend to be a little bit on the loud side inside this is this is a very upscale car. Yeah, and you know, I mean, Mazda has been over the last couple of years. They've they've made moves to try and um, cr- get a more premium perception for their vehicles. They they want to move up market because they know that they're never going to be a huge volume player, and so they're they're not even trying to be. Um, and they know that you know there's limits on what they can do. You know, with the whole you know, performance thing, you know, they, they still want to be seen as driver's cars, uh, but they, they want to be more premium driver's cars. Yeah. And it, it's a the CX nine is a car that will, it'll satisfy a driver, but it's also, it, you, you run it out of its talent. Um, not because it's bad or it's, you know, poorly set up chassis. I think most of his tires, but it's not hard to find the understeer limit. Um, but, but it's fine. You know, it's, it's controllable. Odd ramps are fun still, you know, even as the front end pushes a little wide, you just lift your foot off. It tucks it. It's it, you know, <laughs> I was surprised at like, oh, it's a little greasy here. Um, but it's, you know, it's good up to about seven tenths uh, and you can hit that seven tenths in, in everyday driving. You know, you don't have to be doing something asinine to hit it, which is why I'm talking about it, because I was able to actually as a, an enthusiast driver enjoy myself without doing anything illegal or, you know, dangerous. So I, props for that. That's hard to do. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I drove the CX nine last fall and I was also very impressed with it. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a handsome looking vehicle, you know, for, for what it is, you know, a, a big crossover like that. Um, you know, they, the, the Mazda design language has translated very well to a wide variety of different vehicle types now. Oh yeah. It's, it's very premium looking both inside and out, uh, which is, you know, one of the things that Hyundai and Kia have been very aggressive about is giving you uh world-class premium design at, you know, not necessarily, you know, not, not premium prices. Um, right. So they've, they've, they've opened up sort of, you know, why should you have to suffer with bad design, even though you're not you're not buying a luxury car? So I, I like that. And I like that here as well. I like the way the signature uh, it, model trim of, of the CX-9 is equipped. You know, it's it's a little pricey for what it is. I mean, it's forty five thousand dollars, forty four. But then again, it starts much lower if you're not buying this trim level. And it, it's, it has everything. So if you were thinking of a uh, of a BMW X5 or you know, an Audi Q5 or something like that, but you just, you couldn't get over that price hump if or you didn't want to, you're going to find pretty much most of that satisfaction here in the Mazda. And maybe, maybe more because it's, it's just, you know, that much 
more affordable and you don't really give up anything uh, other than some, you know, some brand cachet. And I, I don't know. I was you know, just trying Ma- to think. Mazda's, you know, Mazda's brand, you know, you, I don't think you're giving up a whole lot there. You know, it's it's a good brand, you know, and I think it's it's pretty, pretty highly regarded. Yeah. I mean, the, the tech is is very carefully studied. You know, it's it uh, does a pretty good imitation of uh, iDrive to a certain degree. And I, I, sh- I guess that's sort of damning it with faint praise. It's just good to keep con- comparing it to stuff because uh, <laughs> it's good on its own. You know, it's it's uh, Mazda, you know, they've gotten free from Ford. They found their identity. Uh, they're making really great stuff. And, uh, you know, this is this is just another example. And the fact that it has three rows sort of tucked in there is uh, is like a bonus because it's not that not that physically large, you know, that it's, I guess it's about the same size as the original CX nine that was based on the Ford edge, but it's, it seems like it's more space efficient. It's, it's lighter on its feet. It's, it's it just overall, it's, it's a massive improvement and it's it, it equipped this way. It's a, it's a luxury car and, you know, Mazda never launched their, their luxury brand, but this is what it would be if they had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, you know, they're, they're shifting the whole brand to that, you know, sort of near luxury, you know, more, more premium feel, uh, you know, and, you know, for, you know, their, their current generation of vehicles, you know, everything they've done in the last several years, you know, has had really nicely executed interiors, really good fit and finish and materials, you know, it, it feels more expensive. It doesn't feel cheap at all. And, you know, you mentioned the, the infotainment, you know, like I drive, you know, it's got the, the central control knob, which, you know, I, I like that approach. Um, you know, and I think it, it works really well in that vehicle. Yeah. All, all together. I mean, it's, it's just fantastically well executed. Everybody go buy Mazdas. So they keep making cool stuff. Yes, yeah, uh, absolutely. And so we've talked about cars. Now we should talk about some other stuff. Um, oh. now that it's been 43 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, for once we don't really have, we can't, we can't talk smack about Uber so we can talk smack about Tesla. Yeah. So um, it, I actually we actually had this on the list for for last week. This is actually some news from last week and we didn't get around to it because we had a bunch of other stuff. But uh, Chris Latner um, is uh, a really brilliant software engineer who had pre- he left Apple uh, in early January of this year. And while he was at Apple you know, during his more than a decade there, he developed uh, a whole new um, programming language called Swift, which has you know been really highly regarded since it came out a couple of years ago. Um, and you know he decided to move on, you know, try some new challenges. And um, when he left Apple, he uh, went up the road to uh, from Cupertino to Palo Alto uh, to join Tesla as their new head of autopilot software development. Um, what you know because their their previous head of autopilot. Um, Sterling Anderson uh, left to, you know, left there to go form his own startup. And um, so Latner went in there and now less than six months after joining Tesla, he has left. And in his uh, in his uh, um, announcement on LinkedIn, you know, basically he said that he acknowledged that uh, he wasn't a good fit with with Tesla um, and their their management. Uh, And I think you know, given, you know, if you look at Tesla's history over the years, you know, they've had a lot of turnover, uh, especially at the upper ranks, you know, with, uh, with people that have to work more closely with uh, a certain CEO that they have. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've known uh, quite a number of people that have formerly worked there and, and had to work, uh, directly for Elon Musk. And, um, let's just say he's not an easy man to work for, but, uh, and not to, not to I mean, aggrandize Elon any more than he already has himself, but a, a lot of guys who are really smart and really driven and, and, you know, change the world are not easy to work for. I mean, Steve Jobs wasn't easy to work for. True. Um, you know, and, you know, certainly, you know, to to Elon's credit, you know, I've never heard anybody accuse him of any of the kinds of things that uh, that uh, Travis Kalanick has done. I mean, you know, he's he's not a you know, he he's not a misogynistic, you know, sexist pig. Um, but, uh, you know, he's he's also not easy to be around, you know, and he he has very high expectations. And like you say, you know, a lot of CEOs do that. Um, but I think in, you know, he's also, you know, tends to set a lot of very unrealistic expectations. And it sounds like um, he wanted a lot more from autopilot than uh, than Latner felt was perhaps possible. Uh, and so he's gone his separate ways from Tesla and, you know, we'll see where he, he lands next, you know, perhaps at, uh, one of the 6,000, uh, autonomous driving startups in Silicon Valley right now. Uh, <laughs> or, or he could just go be a driver. <laughs> yeah. There's that. Well, you know, I mean, after, you know, 11 or 12 years at Apple, you know, he, he earned a few stock options. And, uh, so I'm sure he's. He's he's in no uh, immediate need of uh, uh, getting another job just yet. Um, but, you know, if for, for anybody that's that's interested in learning more about uh, Chris Latner, um, the guys over at the Accidental Tech Podcast did a, a really good interview. They had a they had him on as a guest uh, back in January. And uh, I'll we'll throw a link to that in the show notes for this. Um, if, it's definitely uh, worth a listen to some interesting conversation, especially if you're into uh, into software development and, and the, the really geeky technology stuff. Um, so speaking of uh, geeky technology stuff and, and self-driving, um, the other uh, news item I think we've got is uh, Waymo. Well, actually, both Waymo and Apple um, in the past week have done deals with car rental companies. Yeah, and you had an interesting tweet about that. Was uh, sort of just the idea that um, the rental companies, like the the self drive, the, the rental companies are going to be important to self driving uh, as or autonomous mobility uh, as that comes up as a thing. Yeah, certainly. You know, you know, even even when you've got autonomous vehicles, even if they're electric. You know, they're they're still going to need, you know, some basic maintenance and service from time to time. You know, they're going to need new brakes and tires and wiper blades and windshield washer fluid. And actually, in the case of autonomous cars, probably a whole lot of windshield washer fluid uh, to keep all those sensors clean. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, you know, they will need basic maintenance. And, you know, for tech companies like um, like uh, Waymo and, and potentially Apple, uh, you know, they have no infrastructure for providing vehicle service um, or, or maintenance right now. And so, you know, what, you know, these deals that Waymo has made with Avis and, and Apple with Hertz make perfect sense, um, you know, if they're going to get into the business of providing autonomous mobility services, you know, for traditional automakers, you know, they have networks of dealers 
that can do this sort of thing as well. So they don't need to go to car rental companies. They can, you know, they can use their dealer networks, which would, you know, for the dealers would help offset, you know, some of the losses, you know, in terms of um, consumer sales uh, that they would have got, you know, those, those losses are going to go away. Those sales are going to go away as people shift to uh, automated mobility services, you know, by getting into the business of servicing those vehicles for, their automaker partners, um, you know, they, you know, that's a, that's a new business, uh, new revenue stream for those Man, guys. Think about that. Just how many automakers use fleet now as this sort of like dumping ground, uh, you know, flotation device for cars and to turn that on its head and have the, the fleets, the, the rental companies uh, actually sort of be the saviors of the, the, the the automakers to a degree because they're they're the ones who actually you know touch the greasy bits and uh then you've got the the autonomous providers you know putting themselves together with that like it seems like everybody can find it's that it's that terrible word synergy but that's exactly what it is like everybody has their little niche and if they partner up just right uh it'll work and the, the avis deal was interesting too i was reading the um the mit technology review I've forgotten that Avis um, bought into Zipcar. So they have some yeah. of the the uh, on-demand reservation stuff figured out a little bit more uh, through Zipcar than like, you know, not the traditional like Avis rental desk. They've got they've got that Zipcar experience to draw from. Right. Yeah. So that they've got the, that short term rental business, um, you know, with with Zipcar, um, you know, they've got, uh, you know, a huge network of service facilities, you know, th- not just uh, in the United States, but throughout the world, really. I mean, they, they operate in, in many countries around the world. So by partnering with a company like Waymo, you know, wherever, wherever Waymo, you know, sets up shop and starts providing mobility services with their autonomous vehicles, when those vehicles need service, they can, you know, they can drive themselves to an Avis outlet, you know, to get their tires rotated or, you know, add, add air to the tires or, you know, whatever else needs to be done. That's going to, you know, maybe everything will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the buggy whip manufacturers eventually found something new to do and, you know, um, car, you know, the, you know, carriage makers, you know, did something, you know, found other, other businesses. So, you know, the, you know everybody will find a new niche somewhere eventually. There's, you know, there's probably going to be some pain along the way as, as people try to figure out what is the, the right niche and you know some some businesses are going to grow and some are going to shrink but you know that's just the nature of you know of changing you know as as, as that's the, an economy the changes yeah that's yeah. As the economy changes you know everybody's got to find a new place in that uh, in that ecosystem i um because i work in, in advertising which is sort of a, a young ish uh industry and it's kind of youth obsessed um i've wound up now as one of the elder statesmen in the office. So I <laughs> occasionally say wise things. And one of the things I've reminded my colleagues of, and I, uh, you know, on a, on a regular basis is look, the only constant is change. And it sounds really profound. It's also like half nonsense, but it's, it's true. Like, uh, y- you can't, you can't just expect us to have this sort of, you know, automotive landscape that we had for, you know, the last 40 years, uh, it's going to change and consumer tastes are going to change. You've got this, this large generation uh, coming up now. They're starting to hit their thirties. They're starting to express 
their um, economic might, but they've still got challenges where, you know, home ownership, building families, uh, it, you know, mobility out into the suburbs, it, it's not necessarily on their plate because of the, the way they're saddled with some debt and stuff. And I'm making sweeping generalizations here, but that's all really setting the stage yeah, I mean, for know, they, this stuff. Got- you know, they've got college debt, you know, and that, I mean, that's becoming a bigger and bigger well, problem. Yeah. You and can't get rid of that. You can't even declare bankruptcy. You're that's, that's it. You're, you have that debt. Right. And, you know, on the, on the transportation side, you know, affordability is, is becoming a real problem. Right. Uh, you know, as, as vehicles become more and more expensive and take up a, a, a bigger percentage of your paycheck, um, you know, especially when you, when you factor in all the elements of it, not just acquiring the vehicle, but also, uh, putting fuel in it, paying for insurance and maintenance and everything else, you know, affordability is an issue. And, you know, one, one of the interesting conversations yesterday in this, uh, Cox event I went to was, uh, you know, around the length of, uh, financing terms, um, you know, uh, loan terms. Oh, they're uh, brutal now. They're yeah, so I mean, like seven, 72 and 84 month loans for yeah. cars, you know, are increasingly common. Um, and in fact, in, in Canada, I guess 96 month loans are even common now. And, you know, that's, well, that's I mean, that's a 72 month loan is in metric. That's yeah. <laughs> well, OK, <laughs> but I'm the, sorry. The thing, the thing is, you know, when you take out a loan that long on a car, you know, it's you know, I mean, you're, you're almost you know, looking at like mortgage length, you know, oh, yeah. mortgage length loan. But the problem is your house doesn't depreciate the way a car does. And so, you know, one of the, you know, one of the big issues is, you know, if you, you pretty much are locked into staying with that car for a much longer period of time, if you decide to go down that path, because you can't afford to, to get out of that loan, you know, you're going to be underwater for a significant portion of the period of that loan. You know, the car is going to be worth less than what you owe on it. Right. Um, So that's, you know, I think that's, that's going to be one of the factors that drives people towards more towards mobility services as an option, you know, where you have on-demand vehicle access. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it already is. If I think what you're going to see, because, you know, the folks that I know that are in that situation, they lease, they don't buy uh, or they buy used because the the problem is even um, leasing is becoming less attractive, too. Right. uh, Because the, the gap between lease payments and loan payments is actually shrinking. Uh, yeah. Because lease payments, loan payments are going down because of the um, the extended length loans, uh, but lease payments are going up, uh, and that's in part due to uh, the, that depreciation. The, the retained value of vehicles is declining, especially vehicles from the last five or six years has gone down. Uh, so the the residual value of those cars is is not what it was, you know, several years ago. And in part, you know, we, we were discussing this in, in part that may be due to the technology that's in these cars, because, you know, once you put technology into vehicles, it doesn't change. And, um, you know, the it's it's quickly, you know, it's often becoming obsolete long before the rest of the car is so that that may be that may be acting as a as an act, you know, where it was once thought to be something that added value to the car. Um, on a used car, it may actually be depressing the value yeah. of the car. Yeah, I mean, I would say it adds value at the, that initial sale. And then yeah. after that, it it doesn't necessarily. Right. Um, you know, I mean, so think about that, though, that the long the long borrowing terms uh, that that's almost feels like it's a Hail Mary on the part of automakers, like a last hurrah 
um, to just keep things the way they were. Because, you know, the other other thing is, you know, these, these folks have been out there. They've been working for, you know, five, seven, eight years now. Like, I keep hearing how they're, you know, they're they're um, they're they're being painted as like uh, self-centered or, or selfish or entitled. And it's like, no, they've been working for a while and they like nice stuff because who doesn't like nice stuff? So it's it's going to become about like, OK, if you can't swing the ownership of the nice thing, but you want to have experiences when you go out, well, or, you know, when you go to do things, um, you know, how do you how do you work that? And so one of those things will will be, you know, everybody loves Uber, right, because you get picked up in a pretty nice car and it's, uh, you know, it's a decent service. It's easy to use. It's not you know, some, some weird cab driver. It's, it's, you know, instead it's a weird Uber driver, but overall, like the, the sort of the quality of the experience is higher. And yeah, and I, I don't begrudge that. Totally to people. Is. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's just how it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of shifting gears a little bit and going yeah. in the, in the extreme opposite direction. Of well, you mentioned buggy whips, you, yeah. you mentioned buggy whips. Exactly. And so, so we're not quite going back that far, but uh, there's a, there's a really cool event that's been going on this week. Um, that It's an annual event uh, called the great race. And it's a, it's a road rally for classic cars and it happens every year. And every year they take a, a, a different route. Um, and, um, uh, this year, you know, to compete in the great race, cars have to have been built in uh, no, no earlier than 19 or no later than 1972. So we're talking, you know, 45 years old, 45 years and older. And uh, this year's great race uh, started last Saturday where it's Thursday night as we record. It started last Saturday, uh, June 24th in Jacksonville, Florida. And it ends this Sunday um, in Traverse City, Michigan. And they're covering about 2,200 miles with these cars, uh, over over 140 cars. And um, the oldest car in the, the fleet uh, in the, that's competing this year is a 100-year-old car, a 1917 Peerless uh, with a V8 engine. Um, and you know, imagine driving 2,200 miles in a hundred year old open top car. I mean, this is a big giant roadster. It's nicknamed the green dragon. Um, and it's been driven by, uh, Jonathan, um, uh, oh, why my <laughs> brain fart of his name? Um, from, uh, from, um, um, uh, <laughs> 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 from Hagerty insurance. Um, and, uh, Haggerty's got two cars that they've entered in the race, the, the green dragon, and also a 1960 Plymouth fury that are driven by a couple of other Haggerty employees. Um, but the, the, the car this evening, the, the cars, uh, rolled in here into Ypsilanti and, you know, they were all gathered in the, the street in, in depot town here in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and, uh, got to go down there and, and take a walk around some of these cars, some amazing cars running this year, uh, everything from a, uh, an old uh, Subaru 360, you know, this tiny, all oh, the little teeny thing, yeah. Car. yeah. Uh, there's a Volvo P1800, uh, a couple of Mustangs, a big old Rolls Royce, uh, the Green Dragon, of course, uh, and uh, a lot of other great class. Oh, there's a, a beautiful E type Roadster that was pulling in just as I got down there this evening. Is there a, there's a badass looking uh, 450 SLC or something too, right? Yep. Like, a 450 yeah. SLC and also a 1972 Nissan Skyline GTR. Oh, that's a Ken Mary, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the first, first generation GTR, the two liter twin cam inline six. Um, cool looking car. 
there was also a couple of other uh, slightly newer uh, skylines, uh, four door skylines uh, that were there as uh, that were riding along that were running along as uh, support vehicles for uh, one of the Japanese teams. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing event. And uh, if you if you ever get a chance to see it, you know, definitely check it out. And we'll put up a gallery of some photos um, along with uh, the post for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's just cool. Like you see all these cars, especially the older ones, like the stuff from the teens. Um, you see them either like parked on a field or in a magazine or, or whatever. But to like just see them in operation and hear them run and just look around at the, the engineering is that while they're old, some of the the ways problems were solved on those cars and just the the way they were designed and built is just fascinating and you never see it to see it running and in operation and being used it's it's like one of the coolest things well and that's and that's probably the best thing about this you know you know it's it's one thing to walk through a museum and look at old classic cars but to actually see these things running you know cross yeah. country you know 100 100 year old car driving over 2000 miles you know over the course of a little more than a week you know that's that is cool i mean that is the way cars should be they should be on the road being driven yeah i mean i completely agree with that you got to use it i mean they, they don't like to sit even even newer cars like the worst thing i ever did for any of my cars was just let them sit for long periods of time it's terrible for them yeah absolutely use them Oh, and and probably uh, the, the the most valuable car in the race this year, uh, a Toyota 2000 GT. Yeah, that's that uh, cool to, to see that on the road is that's amazing. I mean, only 351 of those were built. Yeah, I mean, it's a good good for you, whoever owns that, that you're, you know, because at the end of the day, like if, even if something bad happens, like it's a car. You know, like it's cool. It's a historical piece. You don't want anything bad to happen, but you also can't enjoy it while you just sit there and stare at it. They don't do anything. So you got to like but, use but if it. anything, if anything does happen and you're insured with Haggerty Insurance, it will take <laughs> care of you. I'm, I'm told. <laughs> I, I Yeah, I've, I have excellent customer service. I have heard nothing but good things um, about. Yeah, I mean, they're they're the, they're the biggest insurer of classic cars. They, they specialize in just insuring classic cars. Yeah. And so and that's a whole other that's a whole other thing where you want somebody who knows what they're doing, you know, like uh, agreed value coverage and stuff. And so now that I'm talking about insurance, I don't know what I'm talking about. So we should stop <laughs> and just say, like, uh, check out the Hemmings Facebook page as well. They've got a bunch of pictures from the great race as well as other stuff. Um, and, yeah, we'll definitely have pictures uh, that, that we'll put up. And uh yeah. Did we get let's move on to questions or anything? Do we yeah, have we, any, anybody we do have we do have a couple of questions. Uh, let's see on uh, Twitter. Uh, Lansdale Arch asks, uh, am I crazy to buy a used BMW non CPO, a 2014 328i? F I figure still one year of warranty to find out. No, no, I mean, if it looks like it spent the last couple of years at the bottom of a lake, move on. Uh, you know, every car is an individual, so check it over. But no, I mean, yeah, well, and especially if you still got a year of warranty left on it, um, you know, it, it's it's worth taking a probably worth taking a shot at because you know one of the advantages to to buying non CPO is it will be quite a bit cheaper. You know, I mean, you know, going going the certified pre owned route, you know, where it's been reconditioned. Uh, by the manufacturer or, or, you know, a contractor for the manufacturer. And, you know, they put a, they, you do get a warranty on it, 
but you also pay a price premium for that. And so you're going to get a better deal on this. And if it still has some warranty left on it, you, you have an opportunity to find out and, and maybe unload it before that warranty completely expires and, and starts cost and the thing starts costing you a lot of money. Yeah. I, and you know, like what, it's a 318 he was saying? 328. A 328. Um, so that's a, two, that's a, that'd be a two liter turbo, uh, 2014, 328. I think it's a two liter turbo. Um, so yeah, no, you're, you're probably fine. It doesn't, what yeah. could possibly go wrong? It do- doesn't strike me as anything terrible. Yeah. Um, check uh, it out. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're generally pretty reliable, um, you know, and yes, you know, BMW parts and service is going to be more expensive than, you know, for, you know, some other brands, but it, it, it's, uh, know, yeah, it's I mean, shot. so I will give a shameless plug to my friends at FCP Euro. Um, they help me maintain all of my European cars for like 20 years. Uh, they've run a fantastic operation. They have good prices. They stand behind their parts. They're an excellent company to do business with. Um, and they, they sponsor, you know, racing and stuff. And so if you buy the BMW, check out FCP Euro <laughs> for the parts. Them, and tell them that Dan from Wheel Bearings uh, sent you. That's right. Um, and we have no affiliation other than I'm a satisfied customer. But, uh, you know, the parts for the, for BMWs, uh, even all the way up to the through the E90s, um, the, the parts aren't really that expensive. They're, you know, so every car has like those very expensive pieces. But overall, the general wear items, they're, they're not that much. Um, BMWs, you have to watch out for the plastic and the cooling system and stuff like that. But it's again, it's it's maintenance. Um, and if you're paying somebody to do it, plan on spending a little bit but you know if you find a specialist or if you do it yourself you you probably you know you'll be okay you're saving some money on the, the actual like purchasing of the car and you know they are a high quality car they do last a while as long as they don't rust so don't don't hit stuff and don't let it rust you'll be fine just keep fixing it all right and then uh from from jeff on facebook uh thoughts on bmw dropping the manual from the two series <sighs> makes me sad I understand it. It's just, I'm just sad. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a general trend, you know, increasingly customers don't want manual transmissions, especially here in the U S but even in Europe, um, there, a lot of, a lot of drivers are moving away from manuals to automatics. Um, and so, you know, if people don't want to buy them, it doesn't make sense for the manufacturers to, to engineer them. And, you know, also it's it's become more complex for um, manufacturers to do the emissions and fuel economy certification with manuals um, than it is with automatics, you know, with manuals or with automatics. You know, they can they can program the shift points and everything you know, to, to optimize the fuel economy and the emissions. So they do well on the tests and you can't do that on a manual. It's, it's just a lot harder to do um, and and hit those you know, increasingly difficult targets. So, you know, I think, you know, BMW and, and every other brand are increasingly going to have fewer and fewer manual transmissions. It's yeah, they're slowly sucking the life out of us. Yep. We're going to have to find some new hobby. All right. We have one more question, actually, uh, from Facebook. Uh, William Pittman, as cars are being taught to drive safer, will they also learn how to crash and break down? For example. In the case of a mechanical failure, will they know that they should not stop in certain places, even at the price of exacerbating the damage? 
That's a good yes. question. Yeah, no, it, it is. A, it's an excellent question. And uh, the answer is yes. They, you know, uh, I think they, they will, you know, try to get the vehicle, you know, the, the vehicles will try to get themselves into uh, a safe place, um, both, you know, so that they're um, out of the way of other traffic. And also, you know, if there's a, a rider in the vehicle, you know, you want to get them to a, a safe location, you know, where when they get out of the vehicle, they're not, you know, <laughs> not likely to or less likely to get hit by an, another vehicle on the street, on the road. Um, so, yeah, I think they, you know, they, they will uh, be biased towards safety uh, rather than self-preservation. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things that we actually have to teach people about, too, is, you know, like, hey, if you get a flat, don't stop in the middle of the lane on a multi-lane highway, like drive on the rim. Don't worry about the tire. Like, it's just a tire. Just whatever. Just get to your safety you and mean, then deal you, with it. You mean you shouldn't stop in the middle of an intersection for something like that? <laughs> Not unless you want to get clobbered. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I understand like, hey, I don't want to damage the thing, but you'd like balance it like I would my kids are going to start driving soon. I'm sure you had this discussion with your kids. It's like, look, use your head. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you trash the wheel or, you know, you make some little bit of the part of the car worse by getting yourself to safety. A, it's only a car. B, like, you know, part, those parts you know, can be replaced. Yeah. Even it's if it's a lot easier to replace a wheel than a leg. Yeah. I mean, even if the car burns to the ground, so what? Get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, fine. Um, so yeah, I did, but that's, that's an interesting question. Um, how you sort of like allow the car to damage itself. Cause it winds up being like Hal, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> no, it's like, I'm sorry, Dave can't do that. We're stuck here. Um, all right. Well, all right. we, we also, we did have one email question that actually came in a couple of days ago. Fancy. Uh, yeah. So some, somebody taking the, the more challenging route and did it without prompting from us. They sent carrier uh, pigeons. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, Timur asks, um, you guys don't think much of the UK Top Gear. Uh, you guys, yeah, you guys don't think much of the UK Top Gear. Now the Grand Tour. Uh, Dan even went as far as calling those hosts clowns. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan myself as the show spends most time trying to entertain housewives rather than car enthusiasts. What do you think of Motor Trend's video efforts? Do you think they deserve praise for making the right content for us car guys? And what could they do better? Will their business model be viable in the long run? Um, you want to respond to that first? <laughs> I get the impression you don't want to touch that. Um, I, I mean, uh, to look, if you like it, that's cool. I honestly, I haven't watched that much of it. Um, I, I this is going to sound funny coming from someone who's, you know, hosted podcasts for like 10 years. But like, I, I'm not so much into the sort of like uh, what celebrities have to say about stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson was much better when it was Top Gear about cars. You know, when he would do the segments, you know, uh, one of the first Top Gear segments I ever saw was about the Rover P5s or P6. You know, the, uh, um, you know, just hearing him deliver a treatise about that car in sort of the old format, not challenging his pals to some race across Malaysia. That was much better to me. Um, you know, you're offering something up from from a, in, in an entertaining way from a, uh, you know, an informed perspective. Um, I'm not so much for the build shows. The, the roadkill stuff is interesting to me just because it's sort of like it's ratty and, and like, hey, here's the stuff you could do. Um, but it's also kind of like I, I think it it, it had you, you're boxing yourself in, I suppose, uh, where everything has to be kind of half assed and nasty. Um, 
And, you know, build shows don't really do it for me. I, I was never a huge fan of like the build shows on on cable. Um, you know, Motor Trend has a, a base of people that want to watch their stuff. They want to watch Johnny Lieberman drive around and talk. That's OK. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally, you know, as far as the Grand Tour goes, I, I only watched the first three episodes and then gave up. I just thought um, it was boring. Yeah, I, I did, too. And I thought, you know, especially, you know, the whole um celebrity thing you know the celebrity brain um explosion thing you know was just so silly um you know and a, a lot of you know a lot of the segments were you know just straight up rehashes of things they'd been doing on top gear for the last 10 years and you know while it was funny at first you know it was funny back before it was cool <laughs> you know uh, it, you sound like such a hipster now like i watched it before it was cool yeah well i, I did i did yeah so did i um you know but the thing is you can only keep repeating that same thing for so long before it it does get kind of boring you know and you know i haven't seen the the late the the current uh bbc top gear uh, version uh, so I, I can't really comment on that one. I don't know if you've watched that one. Dan. Um, so the last the last season, they um, they were so they were running them in the UK first and then uh, they would release them here on, on BBC America. And so um, BBC America gave me some access to the episodes and I thought they actually did a really good job at respinning the show and making it entertaining Um you know, I watched the first episode. That's the one with, um, you know, Matt Le- LeBlanc and uh, a couple of other British guys. I don't know, Rory, someone. Uh, Chris Harris was. In yeah, there. Chris Harris son. And Chris Harris yeah, is, Chris is Harris good. Is great. You know? I've, I always like I always like the videos that he did, you know, before he was doing yeah. Top Gear. I haven't seen the Top Gear stuff, but I think, you know, it, he's he's got a good, um, you know, a good style, a good personality yeah. for that sort of thing. And, and it's. Again, it's like it's not that I hang over there every or hang on there every word. It was just it was entertaining. It was well put together. Um, they clearly have some some chemistry. And, uh, you know, I started watching the first episode and I didn't I didn't intend to watch it all the way through. I watched the whole damn thing. So I thought to myself, you know, it's OK, there's there's something here if yeah. if it kept my attention. Um, so I think that's good. I know that they're they're coming out with, the you know, Top Gear America. It doesn't look interesting to me, but I mean, Check it out. See if you like it. I yeah. far you know, be it for me to throw stones, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, one, one of the things I always liked about, you know, the, the older Top Gear, um, you know, uh, through the, the past decade um, was, you know, they did a lot of great cinematography. There was a lot of good, you know, film yeah. work there. And that was actually uh, what, looked, what attracted It looked visually really cool. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, um, the, the personality meshing between those three guys, between Hammond, May and Clarkson, you know, was, was fun. But, you know, it has it has gotten kind of old, you know, um, you know, and it's just not not very interesting anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, you got people say like, I'll have the Jag. It's like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. <Just> shut up. <laughs> and, you know, as as for Motor Trend, you know, I, I've, I haven't really watched the roadkill stuff. I, you know, I occasionally watch some of the, the other stuff with with Johnny and, and Jason, um, you know, and, you know, they've, they've actually done, you know, they've gotten really good at the the uh the camera working you know, on and there's a lot of really good visuals in there and you know i like johnny i, I like his style um I, I don't watch it a lot uh, i love to you know. argue with johnny yeah <laughs> <laughs> you 
don't, I don't I don't always agree with all of Johnny's opinions either, but you no, know. but he always he does always make interesting points. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, as for whether their business model model is viable in the long run, uh, who knows? I mean, uh, uh, it, we'll see, you know, I, I mean, as, I, don't, as I don't know all the details of their business model yeah. and how much they're actually generating. Um, you know, I mean, if they're, you know, I think, you know, a subscription model, you know, is probably the be- better approach because, you know, doing video, um, you know, and doing high quality video is hard. You know, it's very expensive and very expensive, especially for the kind of stuff that they're doing. You know, I mean, that's why we haven't really delved into that yet, because, you know, if you want if you're going to do it, you know, you're better. It's better off. I'd prefer to do it right and, you know, have some good quality stuff rather than just something that's half assed. Yeah. Um, And so, uh, you know, in. uh, you know, the Motor Trend guys have, have done some really good, high quality stuff. And so, you know, that that takes some financial support to do that. And it they does, seem to yeah. be getting it. And whether they can continue to do that, we'll see. I mean, as long as if that business model is viable, as long as you have an advertiser who's willing to pay for it. Um, you know, things are looking up in terms of keeping advertisers. If you already have established relationships like, uh, you know, Motor Trend and it's it's, you know, sort of parent organization has. Uh, they have the ear of of advertisers. They have all the the research on their uh, their subscribers, their user base, their audience. Um, you can go out and you can you can get a pitch. You know, you can make that argument. You can say our stuff attracts these people. Um, video is a very smart play now because the world is going mobile first, uh, and video is great on mobile, and it it is you know interacted with at a much higher rate um, than print. Uh, or, you know, even just, you know, like blog posts. So, yeah, it's a smart place to be. And I think that's why you're seeing everybody go there. Uh, what we're going to see, I think, in the next five to 10 years is you know, we're going to have this bloom of of uh, sort of rich content, right? Like podcasts, which are also on the upswing again. They're sort of having a renaissance and and video content as well. Some of it's just like there's just too much, you know, uh, so some of it's just going to die off because it's not getting the audience. It doesn't have the right sales effort behind it to get sponsorship. And it's, you know, it'll it'll atrophy. Um, so, you know, enjoy it while it lasts and and uh, it'll continue to evolve. But at a certain point, I think the the amount of stuff out there is just going to narrow again uh, just through sort of attrition. That's my <laughs> that's my treatise on that. <laughs> and and you know as the advertising guy i will let you have the last word on that that's awesome all right well i think we'll let the uh listeners have the last word on the podcast by going to itunes and uh giving us a review because that helps us uh you know show up to more people if you tell uh tell everybody that you like our podcast if you yeah, don't like it email us directly yeah, that's right. Share, <laughs> share it directly with us and, and we'll try to do something about it. And uh, if you if you love the show, then uh, tell, tell the world on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts and, um, you know, share it on uh, Twitter and Facebook and and whatever, whatever other social media uh, you have. You can you can email us. Uh, there's a link at uh, uh, on the uh, wheelbearings.media site where you can subscribe to the show for free. Um, no, uh, no charge there. Um, and, uh, I think that's about it for this week. Right, Dan? I believe so. So thanks for listening. All right. See you later. Production.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.